Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. And I'm your host, Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabi Soluhuku and Tami Guza. Top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. Fighting continues in South Sudan's Upper Nile region and insecurity continues to hamper aid operations in Somalia. In economics, Coca-Cola launches a smart partnership to empower women and in sports news, Nigeria proposed a World Cup warm-up match against Portugal. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. The European Union is expected to announce a roadmap today to resume direct financial assistance to the Zimbabwean government. This is part of a phased reduction of a decade-long travel asset and arms freeze on that country due to political reforms. The 28-member bloc's high, represent, high representative for foreign affairs, Catherine Ashton, is also expected to officially confirm whether it will ease a travel and asset ban on Zimbabwe's military elite. President Robert Mugabe and his wife Grace remain under the ban. In 2002, the EU stopped direct aid to Zimbabwe, choosing instead to channel it through non-governmental organizations and United Nations agencies. In protest over Zimbabwe's human rights record. A group representing white farmers evicted from land by Mugabe reacted to the announcement. Justice for Agriculture's John Worsley Worswick. There has to be full accountability and we rely on the international community to drive this. So we certainly do see this as the international community becoming complicit in disregarding these gross human rights violations and complicit in terms of sweeping it under the carpet. A survey by the International Organization for Migration shows that those displaced by the intercommunal violence in the Central African Republic are increasingly worried about returning home. Preliminary results reveal that Muslims and other ethnic minorities are particularly fearful of leaving the camps, where hundreds of thousands of people have been living since an upsurge in fighting in December last year. Claire Doulet reports from Geneva. The survey by the International Organization for Migration shows a sharp division along ethnic and religious grounds. More than two-thirds of Muslims questioned said they were too scared to return home and only felt safe in the camps, whereas nearly three-quarters of Christians intended to return home. The IOM interviewed 600 people at over 40 sites in the capital, Bangui, to better understand the needs of those displaced in the conflict. The joint UN program on HIV-AIDS, UNAIDS, says it's deeply concerned about a bill passed in Uganda that would further toughen punishment against gay men. The bill calls for a 14-year jail term for a first conviction and life imprisonment for the offence of aggravated homosexuality. Sean Bryce-Peace reports. 
UN aid says the signing of the bill will have serious human rights consequences. The organization's executive director, Michelle Sedibe, referred to Uganda as the first country in Africa to break the conspiracy of silence on AIDS, but expressed his fears that the bill would take Uganda backwards, relinquishing its leadership role in the AIDS response. The statement refers to studies that show that when gay people face discrimination, including abuse, incarceration and prosecution, they are less likely to seek HIV testing, prevention and treatment services. Sedibe urged Ugandan authorities to reject the bill and ensure the human rights and dignity of all peoples in the country. Egyptian authorities have charged four people with forming a spy ring for Israel. Egyptian Prosecutor General Hisham Baraket alleges that the two Israelis are Mozart officers and that two Egyptians, including a woman, helped provide them with the information. The Egyptians are in custody and authorities have issued arrest warrants for the Israelis. U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry has made an unannounced visit to Tunisia to praise democratic progress in the country where the Arab Spring began. Kerry's visit was to highlight highlight progress made since the 2011 uprising after a crisis last year brought on by the killing of two opposition leaders. Tunisia's transition got back on track when it adopted a new constitution. The new constitution and steps to full democracy have been praised as a model in a region still widely unstable since popular revolts in 2011 that ousted long-standing rulers in Egypt, Yemen and Libya. And finally, the killing of more than 150 people in two states in Nigeria have been condemned by the United Nations Human Rights Office. According to reports, gunmen suspected of being Boko Haram members attacked eight villages in Adamawa and Borno states on Sunday. Spokesperson for the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights in Geneva, Ravina Shamdasani. We condemn in the strongest terms Sunday's attack by gunmen against eight villages in Adamawa and Borno states, which led to the death of more than 150 people. According to reports, about 65 people were killed in seven villages in Adamawa state, while some 90 others were killed in Izge village in Borno state. Many residents have now fled the area for fear of further attacks by the armed men. We are appalled by the extreme and indiscriminate violence which Nigeria has been witnessing in recent times. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, and it's 8.07 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. If you have any questions or comments about our show, you're welcome to send us an email to info at channelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. You can also get a hold of us at our Twitter handle, which is at channelafrica1. A senior UN official says al-Qaeda-linked militant group al-Shabaab continues to control a sizable area 
in southern and south-central Somalia despite gains by African forces over the last few years. The UN's Director of Operations in the Office of the Coordinator for Humanitarian Affairs has recently returned from a three-day visit to the country, highlighting a nation that remains impoverished, where some two million Somalis both inside the country and in neighboring countries remain food insecure. And while insecurity continues to hamper aid operations, a lack of funding for humanitarian needs is has become a global concern. Sean Bryce Peace reports. There have been incremental gains in the country, but with security a major impediment to progress, close to one million people still face emergency food insecurity inside Somalia. We have to work uh, much harder to... John Ging is the Director of Operations in the Office for the Coordinator of Humanitarian Affairs. These figures are very, very large. Um, they tell us a, a simple message, which is that uh, um, the situation in Somalia for Somalis on the humanitarian side is very grave. Um, it's also very fragile. Um, and we have to work uh, much harder to uh, bring people into a place where they will be food secure, uh, firstly, and also um, hoping that the conditions, the security conditions, will uh, improve uh, to allow people to return to their homes and rebuild their lives. Ging warned that a proliferation of appeals, which include the needs in Syria, Central African Republic, South Sudan and elsewhere, should not distract the donor community from its long-term commitment to Somalia, where people have suffered for 25 years and counting. With a $933 million appeal for the country for this year, only $36 million has been funded. That's just 4%. What we humanitarians want to see is we want to see a debate and a discussion around the totality of international financial um, means that are available uh, out there and to talk then about the allocation that is being made to the humanitarian component because, again, our component of international engagement is the life-saving component and not having enough money which now runs into billions of shortfall every year is resulting in millions dying needlessly or suffering um, um, needlessly um, simply because the allocation of life-saving assistance is not available. As the gap between needs and funding continues to grow wider each year, John Ging believes the time has come to have a fresh conversation on mechanisms for funding. At the global level, we have to have a new conversation about, uh, uh, about the fact that uh, the needs are continuing to grow and therefore there have to be larger allocations for humanitarian action. It, it cannot be funded from the same pot of money and that's what we're finding in, in too many, in too many uh, instances. The trend for Somalia has been alarming. In 2011, when a combination of famine and war killed 260,000 people, UN appeals were 86% funded. In 2012, funding levels reached only 52% of the appeal, while in 2013, only 50% of humanitarian needs were met. I'm Shervin Bricebees in New York. South Africa's Minister of Health, Dr. Aaron Mutsualedi, this week called on the Southern African Development Community to unite in the fight against tuberculosis within the mining community. 
Minister Mazweledi says regional cooperation in southern Africa is vital to combat the spread of TB in the mines because a percentage of the labor force comes from neighboring states like Lesotho, Swaziland and Mozambique. For more on this, we're now joined on the line by South Africa's Minister of Health, Dr. Aaron Mutsualedi. Good morning, Minister, and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lulu. Good morning to the listeners. Minister Mutsualedi, why the special focus on the mining sector? Well, we are focusing on vulnerable groups, the, the areas where we believe TB is being incubated because it's becoming a very serious problem. Problem uh, within SADC and, and within uh, uh, BRICS, and unfortunately South Africa falls in both two groups, uh, blocks, because out of the 80%, I mean, out of the 22 countries that carry 80% of the TB of the world, the five BRIC countries are there, SR5, five SADC countries, including South Africa. Now, when we look at vulnerable groups, which we need to focus on, firstly, it is people in correctional service facilities. Secondly, are people in the mines. People in the mines who are working in the mines are seven times more likely to get TB than people in the normal population. That means the incidence in the mines is seven times more than in the normal population, especially the gold mines. And you are aware that South Africa is very well known for its gold mines, most of which were built during the apartheid era, where the issues of safety and health were never taken into consideration. Now, the labor sending centers are within SADC. Most, some of the mine workers are not necessarily South African. They come from uh, uh, mostly Mozambique, we know that, Lesotho, Swaziland, and throughout the whole of SADC. Now, Minister, what sort of interventions are, 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 go- are required to tackle um, TB, especially in, in, in the mines? Yes. Firstly, now, let me say, remember that Global Fund is funding most of us. At least us in South Africa, we are getting money from Global Fund. Mm-hmm. I happen to know that uh, the neighboring countries also get money from Global Fund to fight HIV, AIDS, and TB. And the weakness here is that we are not coordinating because TB is not an individual disease. It's a community disease because it affects many people. It doesn't affect only one individual. It said that for every one person who has got TB, that person may infect 15 others. So what we like to do, uh, and, and let me also correct this uh, 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 statement about uh, my position here. Yes, I'm the Minister of Health in the Republic of South Africa, but I was also elected as the chairperson of Stop TB Partnership in Canada last year. Stop TB Partnership is an international body that has been established to implement some of the policies uh, of the World Health Organization for TB. So I'm also acting in that capacity. So what happened is that uh, the board of the Stop TB Partnership at some stage inside that board was myself, the former Minister of Health in Lesotho and the former Minister of Health in Swaziland were in the board. In a workshop on TB in New York, we brought this issue about coordination around SADC, especially around the mining areas. So the World Health Organization entered the fray, the World Bank entered the fray, the International Office on Migration and this very Stop TB Partnership, they all agreed that we need to come together and they will help us to come together and even make funding available. So we want to call the summit in SADC of all ministers of health 
not only ministers of health, but ministers of mining, ministers of labor, ministers of mineral, and ministers of finance. They need to come together in one common summit. And the summit must have three outcomes if it's to be successful. Firstly, there must be common treatment protocols around SADC. It doesn't depend, it shouldn't depend on which country you find yourself. As long as we have got TP around SADC, we must know what treatment you are on, and that treatment must be common. That means the protocols on what to do with such people has to be common among the SADC, and that can only be reached by the summit, not one country. Secondly, there must be a common database. We must draw a database which, as a South African Minister of Health, I can tell from, the Minister of Health in Swaziland, Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Namibia, Zambia, all over, they can tap into that database to find who has got TB because these minors have got families. We need to follow up their families and screen them. So not only the minors, but the families. And lastly, we need to understand the referral systems. Who refers to who? The former Minister of Health in, in, in Lesotho used to complain that some of the minors who who got TB, who are Basotho citizens. They just bring them back home and they, know, they don't report to anybody. Even the minister doesn't know that I've got a minor here who's from the mines in South Africa and that minor has got TB and I need to follow that minor and follow up the family. So we want to bring all those to an end so that we can work in tandem to bring an end to TB in this region of SADC. Now, um, uh, Minister, as your, your, your portfolio, Stop TB Partnership, now... What sort of response have you gotten from the mines themselves that hire um, uh, mine workers? There was a meeting of the the, 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 the the mining houses and the ministers of health and ministers of labor in, in, in Angola. I think it was in 2011 where this issue was discussed. And the mining houses, it was made known to them that it is in their economic interest that they take this issue of TB seriously. To tell you the truth, Lalu, they, 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 they believe that miners die mostly from mining accidents. That is it's an emotional issue, very, very emotional, I must add. And it's true that uh, miners do die from mining accidents. But to tell you the truth, the biggest killer in terms of numbers, but very silently, is TB. It's, it's the biggest killer. Uh, uh, by far. It's only that because it fell silently and it's not very emotional, it's not actually noticed, but that is the disease that is killing many mine workers. And it's not in the interest of the mining bosses to have that happening to them because uh, a a sick uh, labor force will not be very productive and Mm. it will not play the economy. Now, uh, Minister Mutsualedi, in terms of, uh, um, because I think as we're looking at mine workers and educating them with regards to TB, is what is the drive that is, is currently taking place within the mining industry? Well, at the moment, the mining industry, I'm not saying they are not doing anything. They are doing a lot, I must say. I visited one of the Anglo coal mines in Oris in Pumalanga. And I was very impressed about their programs. But I said the, the problem, the weakness of their program is that it, it is around one person who is working in that mine. 
this person who has got a family who stay in a community, it's only around them. They are, they are getting treatment. They do get some bit of education about it, but it's only about them as individuals, and that cannot be effective. It becomes effective, as I said. TB is not really. It affects an individual. This is a community disease. So we want to work with all of them in the in the mining community. And if that education is happening, it must happen to the miner, to the community around, and also to 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 uh, the family of that miner. Minister Mutsualedi, um, I think you also, uh, there's, a, there's a, a statement that you made. You touched on the fact that uh, with regards to a province in, in South Africa, the Western Cape, um, looking at uh, their uh, prevalence of TB, it was quite high in the Western Cape. And, uh, um, you know, there were some, I think, as a result of that, you sort of wanted to find out why there's this uh, high prevalence and uh, it's low in terms of HIV. Can you maybe touch on that for our listeners to probably get an understanding of maybe how serious TB is? Well, uh, listen, uh, generally the world has thought that we have defeated TB. That is why for the past 50 years we never even came with any new diagnostic tool or any new treatment. We have said we have got it, and that's it. But when AIDS appeared on the scene, everything changed. TB came back with a vengeance, and we know now that in areas where the, there's a high prevalence of HIV AIDS, TB is also very high. In other words, they sort of become two sides of the same coin. The infection rate, especially in most Southern African countries, a core infection rate, I mean to say. That means people are co-infected by both TB and HIV and AIDS. It's very high because they fit into each other. So tend to find a high incidence of TB also in areas where there's a high incidence of HIV and AIDS. But now, what I was saying about Western Cape is that when we look at the incidence of HIV AIDS in South Africa, a province by province, the highest, the province with the highest prevalence is KZN, followed by Mpumalanga. Then comes Free State, uh, which we know is a very heavy mining area. Now, the province with the least uh, prevalence of HIV/AIDS is the Western Cape in South Africa. But when it comes to TB, Western Cape is number one. So I'm saying that that that, that disjuncture between HIV and TB in the in the Western Cape, we don't understand it. We don't. We don't have answers to, to explain exactly why in the case of Western Cape there is a disjuncture between TB and HIV and AIDS, whereas in the rest of the country there is that very clear symbiotic relationship between the two diseases. Minister Mutsualedi, thank you so much. And we do wish you all the best with your, with your drive in the campaign. And uh, we hope that SADC will come together in, in working to eradicate TB within the minors, the vulnerable individuals and their families. Thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, man. That was South Africa's Minister of Health and an ambassador for Stop TB Partnership, Aaron Mutsualedi, joining us on the line. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
The authorities in South Sudan have appealed to residents of Malakal town, the capital of the northern state of Upper Nile, to leave the town and take refuge in far-flung places for their own safety. The appeal follows confirmed reports that heavy fighting is taking place there between government troops and forces loyal to fugitive former Vice President Reik Machar. Channel Africa's James Shimanyula reports. Reports of renewed fighting have been confirmed by spokesman for South Sudan Army, SPLA Philip Aguere Panyang. Addressing a press conference in the capital Juba, Panyang pointed the precise position of the rebels led by former fugitive Vice President Riek Machar. The forces of Riek Machar are in a place called Donglei, and this is a distance of less than 8 kilometers to Malakal town. So SPLA forces in Malakal are expecting them or their attacks at a time from today and tomorrow. Before fighting erupted, Malakal was home to more than 170,000 people. But the fighting has forced nearly 30,000 to take refuge at United Nations camp inside Malakal. The camp is protected by heavily armed UN troops. Army spokesman Philip Aguere Panyang has appealed to residents of Malakal who are still inside the town to leave it for their own safety. If anybody feel uh, like to, to leave the town, then SPLA will not tie them down because uh, during the crossfire you don't control uh, where the bullet will be hitting. So if there is imminent attack, I'm sure most of the civil population inside the town will try to take uh, cover and see where uh, the dangers uh, will be coming from. And they will receive advice from the command of the sector inside the town and if situation is going to be worse definitely they will be told to evacuate the town as panyang spoke south sudan parliamentary chief whip to leo dongi disclosed to parliament that nearly 70 percent of the country's national army has defected to react machar's forces odongi's remarks were strengthened by a disclosure made by south sudan interior minister aliewa yeng that the majority of the defectors have been reported in upper night rebel leader Riek machar's stronghold so far the rebels have not commented on the ongoing battle for the control of Malakal, the capital of the oil-rich Upper Nile state. Meanwhile, President Salva Kiir has addressed hundreds of youth in the capital Juba and asked them to unite as brothers and sisters. I have to appeal to you, youth, and especially the Dingas, whether you are in Jongole, in Upper Nile, in Unity State, or in greater Bahr al-Ghazal, forget about the people that you have lost. And you go back to the fold to think of how to reconcile. It is your duty as the youth to take this message home, that we want this thing to stop. With all the people that we have lost, and we want people to be one, and we want our nation to be one, what will happen? We will have to sit down and we say, let us forgive those who, who did this, and even those who killed people there. That was the voice of South Sudan President Salva Kiir. Since the conflict erupted on December 15 last year, thousands of people 
have been killed and more than 800,000 others have fled the country. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Meanwhile, an estimated 10 million livestock have been displaced by the conflict in South Sudan, making it hard for communities to access milk and milk products. That's according to Sue Luatze, head of of office at the Food and Agriculture Organization in South Sudan. The mass displacements have also disrupted the planting season, forcing people to survive on fish. Lotze told Nelson Luok that her organization has appealed for $77 million so people can receive emergency livelihood kits, including fish, crop and vegetable seeds. Households normally rely on cows and goats for milk products right now where there's still good water around and so when the cows and the goats go away the availability of milk definitely vanishes with it and then secondly those livestock are moving into areas and they're being exposed to diseases that they've never been exposed to before in particular east coast fever which is in lake state and in the equatorias so we think that the livestock are also going to suffer and that will in turn reduce the availability of livestock products for people. So we know in many of these areas, people are only relying on fish. And for us at FAO, our response strategy is very much so oriented to helping people to get more production. So how do they have rapid maturing vegetable seeds, lightweight fishing kits that they can take with them in case they get flooded? How do we help to control and detect the animal health threats? Given the situation on ground, what strategies are you laying in order to overcome such a risk? Yes, we've been very involved in developing a strategy and implementing it from the first days of the crisis. Our FAO office did not close. We stayed with a core of staff here in Juba. Our three offices in Bor, Bentu and Malakal have been looted and we're trying to do our best to recover what we can and reestablish our work in those states. And now we're at the point where we are really accelerating our response strategy. We're currently emptying our warehouses to provide assistance to any of the populations we can reach. But our most significant problem is a lack of funding. SAL has appealed for $77 million in emergency assistance and we have well less than 10% of that being provided. So we really need donors to contribute robustly to our appeal so that we can intervene with these emergency livelihood kits, which provide immediate fish, vegetables, crops, and preserve animal health. You just mentioned that most of the population, especially in the three affected states, are actually relying on fish now. How do they get it? Have you given them some equipment to get enough amount of fish that can feed them? We haven't given enough by any stretch of the imagination. And so the emphasis right now is on procuring additional fishing equipment and getting it into the country and out into the affected populations as soon as we can. We had a good number of fishing kits already in these areas before the crisis, and those kits have all now been stolen. But I think to look at that on the bright side is there's only one thing you can do with fishing equipment, which is to fish. (laughs) So somebody is fishing with our equipment, and that's a good thing. But now, of course, we need to be able to be more targeted in our distribution so that the vulnerable communities have more access to fish. Rainy season is approaching. How do you see the prospect of cultivation in the three affected states? 
we're significantly concerned about the agriculture crop outlook. When people have to be displaced, they lose access to their key seeds. They lose access to the input. Sometimes the households get fragmented and they don't have the labor that they need in order to farm. Sometimes they don't feel safe enough to farm. Those are all concerns that we have about the upcoming agriculture season. But we also know that the South Sudanese are expert at farming in insecurity. Unfortunately, in your history, you have had to produce food under the most god-awful circumstances. And so we know that there is a resilience in these communities, that if they can be provided with a minimum of support, of seeds and tools. We do know that the women, particularly, will go out and try and plant. And if the rains are favorable, they will get some production. But of course, they'll never grow all of the food that they need in these states under the best of circumstances. The livelihood systems are very diversified. You have some livestock, fish, some crops. You might also have someone in the family who hunts. And then there's a lot of reliance on the market, wage labor, for example. So the strategy has to help support all of these aspects of the coping strategy in order for there to be household food security. And each one of those coping strategies has been really seriously affected by this crisis. That was Sue Loter, head of office at the Food and Agriculture Organization in South Sudan, talking to Nelson Luok. And Musa up next with the headlines. Good morning. The European Union is today expected to announce a roadmap to resume direct financial assistance to the Zimbabwean government. Libya's Prime Minister Ali Zidane has announced a compromise with the country's militia groups who had imposed, who had imposed the interim assembly a deadline to dissolve itself. And Egyptian authorities have charged four people with forming aspiring for Israel. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. Zimbabwe's President Robert Mugabe turns 90 on Friday, but according to his office, he will be receiving medical treatment abroad. Officials confirm that the longtime ruler left the country on Monday for Singapore for what they say was an eye operation. Mugabe denies he is battling rumors of prostate cancer. The message was supposed to reassure the public. Instead, it's reignited long-held concerns about his true medical condition in a country he has led for 34 years. Shinganyoka has more from Harare. President Robert Mugabe in previous years. It's his tradition to spend his birthday surrounded by staff members and family before a weekend public bash. But come Friday, February 21st this year, there'll be no staff party at his office. For the first time in recent memory, the longtime ruler is missing his birthday treat to seek medical treatment abroad. We are not worried about his age, we are worried about his performance. The ruling ZANU-PF party has brushed aside concerns about Mugabe's health problems as he approaches 90. Rugare Gumbo is the party spokesman. Having a, a cataract operation, it's a, it's a common thing. But because it is a president, obviously, people uh, make 
noise about it. But uh, we are satisfied with his performance, and we 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 we, we hope he, he, he completes his term of office. That's what he was elected for. And uh, if there are changes, we will advise you accordingly. Despite spirited denials that his health problems are serious, the public remains unconvinced. He's not well, clearly. And it's no longer a, a secret that he's not well. Everyone knows that. So the public just uh, scoffs at, at such statements as uh, eyesight problems. Rumours that Mugabe suffers from prostate cancer and other illnesses associated with old age continue to be a popular topic of discussion. Political analyst Ibo Mandaza. And that if he indeed is ill, then the nation should be told. But persistent attempt to portray him as someone who's, who's invincible, even immortal, <laughs> it's incredible. It doesn't help us. On Saturday, President Mugabe will return from his operation in Singapore for a million-dollar bash on Sunday. Where invigorated, he's likely to defy the critics about his physical health. But on the streets of the country, the symbolism of their leader being away on such a critical occasion will not be hard to miss. I'm Shingai Nyoka in Harare. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. It's 8.36 Central African time and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South African opposition parties have lashed out at President Jacob Zuma, saying he's heading an administration which has achieved minimum service delivery targets. They are debating Zuma's State of the Nation address in Parliament. In his address last Thursday, Zuma acknowledged that the slow economic growth rate was hampering government's efforts to create job opportunities, especially among the youth. Tsepo Ikaneng filed this report. Most of the opposition leaders dismissed President Jacob Zuma's State of the Nation address as uninspiring and short on detail on how his administration will tackle the high unemployment and poverty rates. The critics have also argued that the speech failed to inspire confidence amongst investors. Protracted labor disputes in the mining sector, service delivery protests, maladministration and corruption have been cited as major challenges facing the Zuma administration. When DA leader in parliament, Lindiwe Masibuko, took to the podium, she accused President Zuma of failing to create the five million job opportunities he promised during his first term of office. South Africans have a very different story to tell. Theirs is a story of frustration. Does the president feel the hopelessness of the young man amongst the seven million who have been robbed of their dignity by unemployment? That is why President Zuma has only managed to create 561,000 out of the 5 million jobs he promised in 2009. Just one job out of every 10 jobs promised. That is why there are a staggering 1.4 million more unemployed South Africans today than on the day the Honorable President took office in 2009. Masibuko once again called on the President to resign or face impeachment by the National Assembly over the multi-million rent security upgrades at his private residence in Kanda. The president himself does not respond to the people's demands for transparency and accountability. President Zuma claimed ignorance on national television last this week. He said he didn't know about the 200 million rand upgrade. And he said, honorable members, that he will not resign because of it. If the president honors the principle of good governance and if he wants to restore any semblance of a legacy, he should reconsider this position. In fact, 
He should have resigned the moment the story broke that more than 200 million rands of public money was spent on his private home. Cope's leader Musi Walekota joined in the fray, accusing President Zuma of presiding over a corrupt and incompetent administration. Terence Mbembe says, in fruitless and futile expenditure, 20 billion rand disappeared in your hands. Sisaifuna namanje. Abantu basekayeli chabalele manzi. Malik Magneti. 25 billion rands ipelele ezanze nizenu. Siaifuna bafuoti malie. Buisani mali abantu basek South Africa. Siaifuna bafuoti leo malile. Until you correct and take the country back to where it was when you took it from President Tabombeki. Until you do that, you must come to terms with the fact that you have failed our nation. Higher Education Minister Dr. Blaine Zimande came to the president's defense. He used the failed marriage between the opposition DA and Ahang South Africa to portray the DA as a party that uses black people as tokens for leadership positions. Black people are not for renting. It shows the extent to which the Democratic Alliance does not treat black people with respect in this country. How on earth do you go and appoint a presidential candidate without the knowledge of your membership? We know that some of you are very angry because you were not consulted. And how can we trust you to run an open and democratic government when you can't even consult your own membership about your own presidential candidate? The reason is simple. You have no story to tell. IFP leader Prince Mango Sutubutelezi says a visionary and decisive leadership is needed to ensure that government deals with the country's socio-economic challenges. There is a pain in our nation, Your Excellency. A amount of sweet talking is going to remove it. We need to get to the heart of the sickness and heal our nation. You can vilify me, you can hate me, that will be nothing new for me. But the time has come to prescribe something more than an antibiotic. The time has come for an amputation so that our country can move forward without the dead weight of leadership that no longer leads with integrity. Only then will the state of the nation address begin to reflect the truth. Members of parliament will once again return to the National Assembly this afternoon for the final round of the debate on President Zuma's State of the Nation address. Tsepoikaneng in Parliament. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The importance of water, sanitation and sustainable energy in the post-2015 development agenda was the subject of an open debate of the General Assembly on Tuesday. The United Nations estimates that 2.5 billion people do not have access to adequate sanitation. Next year is the deadline for the Millennium Development Gold MDGs to eradicate extreme poverty. World leaders are now looking beyond 2015 and working on sustainable sustainable development goals after that year. Derek Mbata reports. Opening Tuesday's debate, the President of the General Assembly, Ambassador John Ash, described the water, sanitation and sustainable energy crisis as the preeminent development challenges. 
we can no longer remain resigned or silent whilst a lack of access to water, sanitation, and sustainable energy services takes a tragic and daily toll on the lives of millions of poor people, especially women and young girls. Addressing this nexus of water, sanitation, and sustainable energy is not just a matter of grave concern. It is a matter of moral imperative for the entire international community. The importance of water, sanitation, and sustainable energy was also underscored by UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. He said in the poorest communities around the world, hundreds of millions of people, especially women and children, spend hours each day collecting fire, wood, and water. Inadequate sanitation presents a further threat to health, dignity, and development. Some 2.5 billion people lack access to adequate sanitation. Some 1 billion people practice open defecation. Access to safe drinking water, sanitation, and hygiene must feature prominently in the post-2015 development agenda. We must improve water quality and the management of water resources and wastewater. Girish Menon Deputy Chief Executive of Water Aid, representing civil society, noted that for everyone attending the General Assembly meeting, access to a toilet and safe water is guaranteed. He said working at Water Aid, he is constantly reminded of the 2.5 billion people who don't have access to a toilet. I'm reminded of what an elderly woman told me when I visited her village in the Luapula province of Zambia. She said, and I quote, Life was full of challenges. For our women, finding a place to relieve ourselves was a daily challenge. We had to restrain ourselves all throughout the day and wait till darkness fell before going out to the bushes to relieve ourselves. Constantly conscious of the dangers lurking, be it due to wild animals, snakes, or even men who used to take advantage of our vulnerability. Mercifully, it has now changed. All our houses have a clean toilet. Mr. Menon noted that sanitation remains one of the most off-track of all the Millennium Development Goals targets. He said no village, no city, and no country has ever lifted themselves out of poverty without first improving water, sanitation, and hygiene. Derek Mbata, United Nations. It's 8.45 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Tabisa Lohoku up next with our economics update. Energy policies in Africa need to be addressed. In terms of challenges of security, social equity, as well as environmental sustainability to ensure that they are successful. Morafet Dabane reports. Millions of people in Africa are still without access to energy. Africa accounts for 15% of the global population. However, according to the International Energy Agency, IEA, the continent represents only 5% of energy consumption.
The Coca-Cola Company in Southern Africa and the United Nations Entity for Gender Equality and the Empowerment of Women have officially launched the Smart Partnership, which aims to identify and address the barriers facing women. The two organizations have pledged to reach more than 40,000 women in South Africa, Egypt and Brazil by the end of 2015. Jane Matebula reports. This new program is part of a broader partnership announced by the Global Coca-Cola Company and UN Women in 2011. In South Africa to date, approximately 4,500 women entrepreneurs in the Gauteng and Northwest provinces have received training in business skills such as daily record keeping, marketing and budgeting. The South African economy is being held back by a crisis at the state-owned electricity provider Eskom. Experts blame a range of problems linked to the management weaknesses at national and company level, warning that there is little prospect of improvement soon. They suggest that nuclear and shale energy may be needed. Eskom is under pressure to boost capacity and rejuvenate an aging power grid. The director of law firm Bowman Gilfan says that the average workers, particularly in South Africa's mining sector, feel alone because government has neglected their needs. He often says that too much emphasis is placed on monetary wage rather than the social wage. Social wage deprivation has a build-up as mine workers went home to a shanty, a rundown establishment. Financial indicators at the hour. The U.S. dollar trades at 10.84 South African rands at 8.78 Botswana Pulas, 5.67 Zambian Kwachas. 0.59 to the British pound and 0.72 to the euro. Gold $1,315. Platinum $1,412 an ounce. Brand crude oil. 110.83 cents a barrel. Economics update. Thank you, Taviso. Tami Gulza up next with the sports update. A quick look in your sport. Nigeria has proposed a World Cup warm-up friendly against Portugal. The African champions have confirmed only next month's friendly against Mexico as a warm-up game for Brazil 2014. However, chairperson of the Nigerian Football Federation Technical Committee, Chris Green, has now said another match against Portugal could well be on the cards. However, Green said that the match will be played if Portugal accept the agreement. Nigeria are drawn against Argentina, Iran and Bosnia-Herzegovina, while Portugal are pitched against Ghana, Germany, United States of America in the World Cup. And our local football as Cape Town were not able to use home ground advantage to beat Orlando Pirates during their PSL match at the Athlone Stadium. They played to a goalless draw last night to continue their disappointing run of results. Both Ajax and Pirates came into the game looking to undo the wrongs, which saw them both suffer defeats in their league games on the weekend. Pirates goalkeeper Senzo Meiwa did brilliantly to keep the home team at bay, while Eric Tinkler's side struggled to really test the Ajax goalkeeper. And on basketball, the Angolan basketball team is growing in leaps and bounds, being number two behind football. 
Angola is rated number 20 in the world, better than the position soccer occupies in the FIFA rankings. The Angolan Basketball Federation has concluded plan to organize a Four Nations tournament as part of its preparation for the senior men's national team ahead of the 2014 FIBA World Cup that is scheduled for the 30th of August until the 14th of September in Spain. Angola Football Federation's Director of Marketing and International Relations Officer, Tony Sofrimento, explains how much development has been done to ensure professionalism of the sport in the country. Our government, they, they, they put so many possibilities and money to develop a sport in our country. In basketball, we start, we start with so few teams. Because when the Portuguese people stay in Angola, basketball is for the, the, the simpler people, the people the, uh, living in the ghetto, they don't, they don't participate in the activities like basketball. The Angolan under-17 youth squad will compete in the 2014 FIBA World Championships to be held in the United Arab Emirates from the 8th until the 16th of August. And Sacramento reveals that his organization is preparing the current under-17 youth squad to take over from the current Angolan senior men's basketball squad. Well, first of all, let me tell you that uh, we are so thanks with those team, this team because they win the African championship. In the moment, uh, people they don't uh, believe that they can win. And uh, our target in the uh, World Championship is to play. We are preparing these players for our national team men, senior men. And now in hockey, a brace apiece from Lillian Duplessis and Kathleen Taylor, plus one more by Jade Maynard, gave the South African women's hockey team an impressive 5-0 victory over Scotland in the fourth test at the Twana University of Technology in Pretoria last night. The Proteus led 2-0 at halftime. However, the South Africans will have to lift their game to keep the country's winning record alive this afternoon again. And finally, with tennis, South Africa will face Lithuania in the second round of the Davis Cup Euro-Africa Zone Group 2 from April the 4th to the 6th at the Iron Country Club in Centurion. South Africa beat Monaco 3-2 at the same venue earlier this month in round one of the Davis Cup. And tennis South Africa acting CEO Gavin Crooks says that his organization has formed a good working partnership with the country's club and it made sense that the Davis Cup returned to the venue. Crooks says that the International Tennis Federation, the ITF, had requested that the match court at the country club be increased in size to abide by its international Davis Cup regulations. And that's your sports update on Channel Africa and back to Lulu Gabu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Recapping the top story on Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa fighting continues in South Sudan's Upper Nile region and insecurity continues to hamper aid operations in Somalia. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org. Follow us on Twitter at our Twitter handle, which is at Channel Africa One, or you can send us an SMS to plus two seven eight two double three two five nine zero five. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency nine six two five kilohertz on the thirty one meter band to southern Africa is Kanda Bongoman with Lelela. Oh,